So I would begin by wishing you a happy new year, but Larry David has a rule that you can't wish anyone a happy new year after three days. I'm wondering if you ascribe to that. I'm not even sure if it is a new year yet. It feels like Groundhog Day in Congress uh, right. these days. So uh, maybe we can keep saying it at least until we have a, a Speaker of the House. Right. Josh Harder, the Democratic congressman from California, is here on the first podcast of 2023 for Too Close to Call. Thanks for being here. But my first question to you is, are you a congressman? Is that because you haven't been sworn in yet? You you are obviously in your third I'm term. Not, you I'm, your a, third I'm term. a member elect, is my understanding, uh, which doesn't really seem to to mean much. It means you know members of Congress or member elects of Congress aren't getting paid, and frankly, given the chaos we're seeing these days, I don't think they deserve to. So that would so if you if this went on for a couple of weeks, you wouldn't get paid. Correct. Yeah. Uh, my so it's like a government. It's like a government shutdown in a way. It is. Well, I mean, we're not official. Uh, members of Congress yet. We we haven't been uh, sworn in. And I think the somebody somebody told me on the House Admin Committee that paychecks go out on the 16th or something like that. And if there's no uh, Speaker of the House and swearing in ceremony by then, then they don't know what happens. I mean, it's a new process. Everybody's figuring it out because it's been 100 years since it's happened before. Maybe that'll be a kick in the boot for some folks to actually do their job. So we're into day three of this. I was curious to get your window on what it's like on the House floor when these repeated roll call votes are going. I, I'm So many people are watching this on C-SPAN or their favorite cable network. And you see interesting relationships or conversations developing. I, I saw you had, I believe, your daughter there the, for the first day. So you were probably hanging around with family. I think that's the first ceremonial day because it's supposed to be celebratory. You bring the kids out to the floor. But then after like round three or four of this, what is the conversation among Democrats? Well, I have a lot of friends on on the other side of the aisle, too. I'm a problem solver. And so I've been talking to a lot of the folks that are trying to round up votes for, for Kevin McCarthy. I don't have a, a ton of connections with the uh fringe ideologues that seem to be holding the process up. Uh, but certainly on the Democratic side, there's a lot of schadenfreude. There's not enough popcorn in the world for the circus that we're seeing unfolding right now. And it doesn't come as any surprise to any of us. I, I think if you don't have any policy platform, if your only idea is to burn down the building, it shouldn't come as a surprise when it's currently on fire. Uh, this is what the Republican Party has been asking for for decades, empowering some of these French folks who care more about grandstanding than, than actually helping people. And I think there's a certain amount of um, glee and amusement from folks on our side, seeing what we have seen internally finally being broadcast for the nation as a whole. So you mentioned you have friends on the other side. What, what are Republicans saying then? I mean, is there, can you give us an, an example of someone you talked to on the other side of the aisle and, 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 it's yeah, sort of I think a, it's, a the, it's a lot of the folks that are are trying to to work hard to get to a resolution. Folks like uh, like Don Bacon, uh, Brian Fitzpatrick, Dusty Johnson is a good friend, has been very involved in trying to to get this to a resolution. Um, and I think there's a couple ways this can end. I, I think either McCarthy gives enough concessions to the far right uh, that they finally cave in or they get a different 
candidate, somebody like a Steve Scalise or, or Patrick McHenry, or there's uh, some sort of Hail Mary plan where maybe they make a deal with Democrats. I think that seems incredibly unlikely to me, given yeah. the current nature of the Republican Party. Uh, I would probably go with option two, but I think we'll find out a little bit today how many uh, people are still left over after McCarthy essentially mortgages the House for a third time. Yeah, I'm with you on option two. I think Scalise is probably the most likely option. I can't imagine any Republican speaker having credibility if they formed a coalition government as as many as many people in the country might want that the partisans and the fire breathers, frankly, on both sides, I think would 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 go nuts over that option. Um, but I mean, are you guys when you're on the floor, are you guys just like are there clicks? Is it like high school? Like do the jocks and the, do the nerds sit together? And like, how do you decide who to mingle with? Like people are freaking out because like AOC is talking to Matt Gates. Like who, how does how does it work on the floor? You guys just all kind of bullshitting and, and scrolling Twitter like the rest of us. I think there's, that's a lot of it. Uh, yeah, I think people are getting a more intimate look into what actually happens in Congress on a daily basis because the rules that the C-SPAN cameras have to operate under are not actually in effect until there's a Speaker of the House. Yeah. And so a lot of these clips that people are seeing, as, as you probably know, aren't actually allowed in a typical congressional uh, uh, session because some, some folks, the leadership continue, uh, believes that they could be embarrassing to, to members. I actually think it'd be a good thing to get folks more insights into what actually happens uh, every day. But absolutely, I think most members, you know, tend to have a group of friends that they spend a lot of time with. And, you know, I got 10, 15 people that I talk to a lot, but I have a lot of people that I serve with on committees. I have a lot of friends on the other side of the aisle, and especially at a time like this where nobody knows anything because the resolution is unknowable. Uh, there's a lot of conversations that are happening and there's a lot of mingling and, you know, uh, unlikely bedfellows having uh, having talks and I don't think there's necessarily deals that are happening. I think more people are spending time talking about how stale the churros are than they are, you know, trying to make sure that there's uh, some sort of coalition government happening. I think, frankly, if folks actually could listen in, I think it tends to be more mundane than you might expect. Who does Congressman Harder hang with? Uh, you know, I, I think I hang up mostly with folks that uh, came in in my class in 2018. We took back the House. And so there's a lot of people from districts like mine that are fairly bipartisan, a lot of current frontliners. I'm also a, a new dad, as you said, a, a 10 month old. And um, there's sort of a, an informal dad caucus almost okay. <laughs> of, uh, you know, folks like like Andy Kim and Colin Allred and Jared Golden, who all have relatively young kids and are in similar spots. And, you know, all of us want to make it back home so kids can go to school and go to daycare and you know everybody's plans are, are totally up in the air as you said it was supposed to be this big celebration having family in town and unfortunately we're stuck stuck on the floor doing another vote and hoping for a different result so you mentioned that democrats are obviously watching this with popcorn but what is the best outcome for democrats in this speaker vote putting aside that obviously you would like hakeem jeffries to be the speaker but other than that would it be Kevin McCarthy or could it get worse for you if it's not? <laughs> I think a little bit, it's a little bit of rearranging the deck chairs. I don't think it matters too much what individual they put forward. It's going to be the same policies. And uh, I think the, the only answer here, whoever it ends up being, is going to be further empowering these grandstanders and far right ideologues. But 
ultimately, I think real political wonks are, are watching this very closely. It's historic. It's unpredictable. It's kind of fun for people to see this happening in real time. But I think as a party, we're not doing a good enough job showing an average voter why they should care. Uh, what are the stakes here? It's not just Kevin McCarthy's ego. There's a little bit of schadenfreude watching somebody who spent their entire life without principles, without any type of policy aspirations, finally getting a little bit of comeuppance. But I think we need to connect the dots better for most people. I mean, the, the consequences here are big. Republicans are demanding that the House all but eliminate the Ethics Committee, which was only going to make Washington more corrupt and dysfunctional. They're, they're insisting that the next Speaker of the House doesn't pass a budget, uh, which a community like mine that routinely doesn't get the funding that it needs it, it desperately, desperately is looking for, especially at a moment when we're flooding in my district because of the rains in, in California. I mean, Ralph Norman, one of the um, you know far-right ideologues, has said he'll only vote for a Speaker who will breach the debt ceiling and stop social security payments to seniors, stop paying military salaries. I mean, this isn't just sort of a fun parlor, parlor game to see who Republicans end up with, no matter who they end up with. The actual consequences for the average lives of folks in districts like mine all across the country are going to be pretty significant. So this is a good segue to a bit of a policy question I have for you in that do the barbarians at the gate have a point? I'm watching some of the commentary saying, you know, some of these people that are holding out, they don't have any policy goals. They just want to burn everything down. They don't really want to do anything. They don't have a policy end game in mind. But I would push back on that. I mean, I listened to Rand Paul last year talk about the omnibus budget, and a lot of it made sense to me. And frankly, some of his points that the Congress rushes in three days to pass a 4,000 page bill that no one can read and puts, what is there, 12 different spending bills in one package? Nobody really knows what's in it, but you have to pass it. You have to pass it. You have to pass it. And it just seems like a crazy way to govern. Now, whether you agree with what Rand Paul would cut or with what, you know, uh, the congressman from Tech, Chip, Chip Roy, would cut or, is, is, is a different question. But the process, the process looks a little crazy to, I think, the person on the street. So when you see, you know, Representative Perry or some of these guys who are holding out, who are saying, I want spending cuts. This is the change I want. Don't aren't they really asking for a structural change here that ha has a bit of a bit of a point in the way Congress works? The process is deeply broken. I, I think the folks that are 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 holding out on Kevin McCarthy are not exactly a monolith. I think some people like a Lauren Boebert and a Matt Gates are really just grandstanders who don't have huge problems with uh, the, the congressional rules package. They, they want to be famous on Twitter, and, and they seem to be uh, pretty successful at, at using this. That, I think, is a little different from somebody like Chip Roy or, or Andy Harris, um, who I think do have some pretty deep-seated frustrations, and, and I do have some agreements with that. I, I think what I tell them is that the reason for these large omnibus packages that are must-pass bills, uh, well, well, first, it's very dysfunctional to the institution. Uh, and it's not just on these spending bills, it's on issues like the, the infrastructure bill. The infrastructure bill would have been a much better piece of legislation 
and it would have been much easily easier digested by the average voter if it had been broken down in one day or one week we spent on roads, one week we spent on water, one week uh, we spent on what we need to do uh, for, for some of the electric vehicle infrastructure across our country. And I think it would have been stronger legislation because of that and more popular and probably better implemented. But the reason it has to come together in one package is not because of the House rules, uh, it's because of the Senate rules. Uh, it's because of the way the Senate operates under unanimous consent. Uh, there's essentially only two ways the Senate could pass a bill these days. It's through reconciliation or unanimous consent. And if there is only one person who stands in the way of a bill and anything of consequence, there's always going to be at least one senator who opposes it or wants an, an up and down vote, the Senate grinds to a halt for, for days or weeks. And so you end up with this system where the Senate can only pass massive pieces of legislation or very small things that do almost nothing of, of, of real impact. And so that's the problem. And so I in think, other words, you know, so, so in other words, the reason I mean, going back to my analogy, Rand Paul wants these up and down votes is because then he could stop every individual piece rather than put it all in one. You, you got to be for it or against it and everything gets through. But then we're not sure about everything that's in there. He would because then you'd got the, the conservatives that would take in the Senate, I'm assuming is what you're saying, would 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 take that individual, say, spending on water and public works and maybe hold it up. And for weeks and weeks, you get nothing else done. Right. I, I don't I think this gets a little bit into the, the real weeds here. Yeah, yeah. this is the um, real weeds. But, you know, the House can vote every five minutes on a new piece of legislation. The Senate can't. And in the Senate, it can take a week to pass a single bill if, if, if senators essentially decide to use every single delaying tactic. And so you just can't take big pieces of legislation and pare them down into bite-sized pieces that are more easily explained and that are more easily amended and, and reformed. And so if you could fix the Senate procedure, which obviously there's, there's a lot more to it than just the filibuster, there's the entire way the Senate operates as an institution, uh, I think we would have a more nimble Congress because of that. And I think we would pass better legislation. But again, that's not something that's really going to be fixed in the speaker vote. And frankly, I don't think that's something where a lot of these fringe ideologues who are holding up uh, Kevin McCarthy's speakership seem to have a lot of ideas on how to fix. I know you build yourself as independent minded. You mentioned you're in the Problem Solvers Caucus. You won your your district, I believe, by 10 points in this this past reelection. So but you've also expressed some concerns with the with the Democratic Party, I believe. How is Hakeem Jeffries, your new incoming leader, going to be different than the old guard of Nancy Pelosi? as you know, and as an opposition party within the House, and do you think it will be an improvement? Well, first, I'd say it's not just going to be Hakeem. Uh, there's an entire leadership team. And I think we're, we're kind of going from a world where it's essentially one, one speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, who makes a lot of decisions and has an enormous amount of power to a more decentralized model, both within leadership uh, Hakeem Jeffries is, is joined by Captain Clark and Pete Aguilar, obviously, and together they're sort of viewed as a unit. And I think so far when it comes to things like hiring decisions uh, or, you know, policy decisions, they're, they're trying to make decisions more as a, 
as a coalition uh, than, than necessarily putting all the power just with Akeem, although uh, he certainly calls the, the final shots and uh, is, is going to have an, an outsized amount of influence. I also think it's going to be more decentralized in the committee chairs. Uh, I think if you look at the history of Congress over 250 plus years, there's often a seesaw effect between committee chairs and party leadership. And there have been many times in congressional history where committee chairs have a lot more power than the Speaker of the House. And we have been in a period for decades now where the Speaker of the House really dominates. Uh, part of that has to do with the nationalization of, of politics and our, our media landscape and how that has changed. Um, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if some of that uh, devolves back a little bit into the hands of, uh, of committee chairs and to subcommittee chairs and to individual members. I don't think that necessarily would be a bad thing. Ultimately, nobody knows uh, any individual district better than the member of Congress that represents it. And they're going to be the best person that's going to come up with the best ideas of how to actually make sure we're solving, solving problems. So obviously you're in the minority. So that makes it more difficult to really control any of the legislative agenda. Although we'll see what happens on the other side, how that gets resolved. Um, what should be the Democrats' goal in the House of Representatives in 2023, given that you can't drive legislation to fruition? I, I think we should try the best we can, and we should uh, draw a clear contrast between what we're trying to do and what the other side is already doing. I, I think, frankly, I've been successful in a very purple district uh, for, for a long time, and I think one of the reasons for that has been that most people think politics has, has changed a lot in the last couple of decades, the, the age of Twitter, TikTok. And to some degree, they're right. Uh, if you're angry and loud enough, you can be a famous politician these days in a way you couldn't 50 years ago. And I think we're seeing that on display today of all days uh, with the, the Lauren Boberts and Marjorie Taylor Greens and, and Matt Gaetzes, who really care a lot about attention. But I don't think that Things have actually changed all that much. I think technology has changed, demographics has changed. What hasn't is that this job is still about showing up and helping people, uh, just as it's been since Tip O'Neill talked about all politics being local. Uh, one of the dairy farmers in my district told me, you know, he doesn't have Republican cows or, or Democratic cows. He just has cows that that need help. And that's largely all the policies that we've worked on. And so my hope is there's going to be some moments for bipartisanship. But I think uh, that prospect seems to dim even in the last 72 hours of this uh, speaker goat ongoing where McCarthy continues to give more and more concessions to the to the far right. And so if we end up in a world where we are having debt ceiling fights and budget fights, I think the job of the Democratic Party is to make sure that people understand what this is all about. As I said at the beginning, making sure that we're connecting those dots that, you know, why do we care about a debt ceiling? We care about a debt ceiling because if it's breached, those social security payments aren't going up. Those military salaries aren't, be, uh, aren't being paid. And I think if we help people understand that, we're going to be in a great spot uh, to make sure that we bounce back and take those gavels back in, in the next two years. It doesn't feel like it in this moment, but the Democrats did lose nine seats. You did lose the House. Is there anything to be learned from that? There's a lot of legislation pushed through and passed through the first two years of the Biden administration, but Democrats still lost the House. Is there any lessons you think the party should take away from not having control of the lower chamber anymore? I, I think it's generally viewed 
as an overperformance based on the fundamentals, right? Inflation was high and gas prices were leaving a lot of folks reeling. It was a presidential midterm with a Democrat in the White House. Typically, we lose a lot more seats than that. And I think that conventional wisdom about an overperformance, that there's some real truth to that. But I think we should also be frustrated that we lost seats that we should have absolutely won. Uh, in the Central Valley, you know, we have a, a region in California that's always been pretty purple. Uh, it sends Kevin McCarthy to Congress and it sends me to Congress. And, you know, we had two other seats where Biden won with a much higher margins than he did in my seat. And both of those seats today are held by Republicans. Uh, I think we have other seats in California. I think we have four or five seats in California that Biden won by double digits that are held by a Republican member of Congress. There's another couple uh, in, in New York and, and across the country. And so I do think people, uh, we should have a moment of introspection about what we did wrong uh, and how we can do better in 2024. I think we could have put up stronger candidates. I think we could have supported them more. I think some of the decisions that were made on uh, party spending were, were not as uh, data-driven as they have in the past. Just to give you an example, in 2020, all 10 of the closest races in the country had heavy investment by the Democratic Party. All 10. We knew exactly what the close races were, and we made sure that we put up strong cases to, to win them. In 2022, uh, last year, there were a lot of districts that were very close, decided by less than one point that the Democratic Party all but ignored. So what uh, happened? Know, if that's the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee's fault. What, what happened there? Uh, I think there's two explanations. One is it's either a mistake of analytics. The polling was off. The uh, models were off. And we just didn't realize that those districts would be close or a failure of decision making. We knew those districts were going to be close and we just didn't do a good enough job uh, making the, the right investments. Of those two explanations, I go for the second one. Uh, I think if you look at both the outside polling and the inside polling in a lot of those districts, um, it was pretty clear that they were going to be decided by just a point or two one way or another. And I think it's inexplicable that we didn't put up uh, more, more resources to make sure that those candidates actually got across the finish line. All right. Would you indulge me, indulge me in a lightning round? To close up here. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Do my best. Yeah. So your district, you're in the ninth congressional district, which is, I believe in your bio, it says Tracy, California. Uh, Tracy's where I live. Uh, Tracy, Tracy, Stockton, Manteca, Lodi. Yeah. Right. About, uh, right outside of it. How far would I have to drive to get for, to Stockton to Tracy? Uh, 30 minutes, okay, uh, depending 30 on minutes. traffic. Some of the roads are flooded at the moment, but right. uh, it's pretty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know you're dealing with flooding out there. I just want to give listeners a picture of like where we're dealing with in California because the state is so big. Yeah. Where where would you send me for a drink in your district? There's a lot of great places. I think uh, Lodi has 96 independent wineries. <laughs> the awesome. best wine. People don't realize a third of all the Cabernet in California comes from Lodi. You're probably drinking it every single day. You just may not see it uh, on the bottle as prominently as you should. So I'd send you to Lodi and any one of those wineries, you'll get a great drink. You have a first, you have a favorite though? I don't know if I should say that. That'll get me like, I uh, think right. in, in politics, Someone... you have to say everybody <laughs> is is the is the favorite. I think the, mo yeah. the, the name that most folks will recognize probably the most is the Michael David Winery, uh, okay. which you, you've probably drank many times. Uh, all right, I will, I'll be on the lookout for that one. What's something you've read recently that you'd recommend everyone read? 
that's something I've read recently. Um, I uh, I will say that I've been reading a lot about uh, <laughs> about about uh, Napoleon. Uh, I, I ah. I'm a big history buff, as I think many political leaders are. I've been pretty fascinated reading about uh, his his growing up in Corsica and some of the things that he did well before he got on the center stage, uh, and uh, and sort of the role that the French Revolution had uh, and his joining the Jacobins. I, I I think it's it's pretty fascinating when you look at how things are still making an impact on our politics 200 years later. So you like to keep it light when you're off hours. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I, I put okay. I put a, a whole lot of podcasts on when I'm driving my 10 month old. I figure it really seeps in and gets into yeah. her consciousness, even if she can't learn to read. Oh, do you have a favorite podcast? That's a good one to ask. What, I, I listen to mostly history podcasts. And so, you know, there's a whole slate of them. Um, I'm, I'm listening to a couple of Napoleon podcasts at the at the moment, but also a lot of ones on the on on sort of early medieval history in Europe and uh, on China as well. OK, a house colleague you'd like to get to know better. House colleague I've got, I'd like to get to know better. Uh, I think there's a lot of really terrific new freshmen uh, that have done some some great things. Uh, I will I will call out Mary Paltola uh, as somebody that I have had a chance to get to know a little bit, would like to know a lot more. When you can win as a Democrat in Alaska on a on a pro fish agenda, I think the whole Democratic <laughs> Party should look at what she did right and what we can learn from it. I mean, we should we should put her up for president at some point. She seems wow. to be absolutely terrific. Okay. Uh, I, I shouldn't I, I shouldn't get her yeah, in yeah, trouble yeah. by saying that. No, but, no, no. Uh, here, if you, you look at what she's first. done correctly. She, she's, I think, one of the most successful political leaders in the Democratic Party and didn't, doesn't get enough attention. Huh. I like that. An issue that Democrats should talk about more frequently. Any issue. Uh, I would say, you know, probably the most important thing that we did for a district like mine that has not been talked about enough is two days ago, the cap on insulin for Medicare beneficiaries went into effect. $35 a month for people on Medicare. Half of my community is diabetic or pre-diabetic. Half of everybody in my district and wow. folks are, you know, paying thousands of dollars out of pocket because they can't afford the insulin. Talk about the stakes of an election. Every single Republican in Congress voted against the bill to cap insulin. Every single one. Uh, and I think if more voters realized that that was actually at stake, we'd win in a landslide. Why is why is half your district diabetic or pre-diabetic? That's a, an astounding number. Yeah, it is. I mean, my dad's an optometrist here. And, uh, you know, every every week my whole life, my dad has had at least one patient who has gone blind. Every week my entire life, my dad has had at least one patient who has gone blind because of unmanaged diabetes. And it's not just vision loss, it's liver failure and, and heart problems. The, the health consequences of unmanaged diabetes are huge. And it's not that people don't know they're sick, it's that they can't afford the insulin. And it's a lot of districts that are like mine, maybe not, you know, half, uh, but diabetic rates in rural America are through the roof. Uh, and it's not something that we do enough about. It's not something that we really do enough to fund prevention on. And it's not something that we really do a lot to make sure that folks can actually afford to pick up their kid from school and afford their groceries and make sure that they can afford their insulin. If you get a 30 minute break at work in the house, what do you do with it? <laughs> um, what do I do? Uh, besides check uh, check Twitter, I have a I have a baby cam, and so I spend a lot of time um, opening up that 
and watching my daughter take naps, which I, find I knew very was going to come back to the daughter. I knew it would come back. to the daughter. <laughs> I, pre- there, I nothing, that uh, it makes me a little sad at times when it's like, you know, 10 o'clock at night, but I can like open it up and make sure that she's still uh, sleeping. All right. It's, it's amazing. Modern technology can uh, make you feel connected even when you're far away away. Yeah. But I, you mentioned Twitter. You're in your thirties, right? You're 36. Yeah. Are most members just like us? Like we're like reporters, like you're on Twitter. What do you, how many hours of the day are you spending on Twitter scrolling? I think younger probably members too are much, on... probably yeah. too much. I mean, especially given there's probably three people in my district that are actually, you know, paying any attention to, to what happens on Twitter. It's right. certainly a DC game, but you know, people run for office because they're interested in policy because they care about these discussions. And so I think it shouldn't come as a, as a shock to people that were just as marinated uh, in all the, 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 the Twitter's function as, uh, as, as, as folks who are reporters. All right. Last two, a hard one. And then an easy one. Should Dianne Feinstein retire? I think she will. I think it's time for a new generation of leadership. Uh, and I think there's going to be a lot of great candidates who are stepping up to to, to replace her. Uh, I think she'll make that decision herself, but I think it's time for new leadership. Okay. And what's your favorite spot to eat in D.C.? In D.C.? Um, you know, besides the, 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 the pizza places in the basement and, yeah. and all the rest. <laughs> I would say uh, Chico. Uh, it's a Chinese Korean place. I think it's like on Eighth Street. Yeah, high quality. Can't go wrong. All right, that was excellent. You did you did nice with those. I I feel. Uh, Congressman Josh Harder in his third term from California's ninth congressional district. Thanks so much for coming on the first podcast of 2023 here on Too Close to Call. Love it. Thanks for having me.